two films, one theme. This is Words and Movies. Thanks once again, Rebecca, and welcome to yet another edition of Words and Movies. I'm your co-host, Claude Call. And I'm your other co-host, Sean Gallagher. And today we're looking at movies involving foreign correspondence. Now, back in the day during the studio system, American films, I can't claim knowledge about any other country, but American films that were about journalism or had journalists as major characters mostly had them dealing with domestic issues like crime, politics, both, or if it was a more lighthearted movie, something like human interest stories or sports. During World War II, you got to see some movies about the war in Europe and Japan as told through the point of view of a U.S. reporter, including Alfred Hitchcock's second American movie called, funnily enough, Foreign Correspondent. But generally speaking, those were the exception rather than the rule. However, in the 1980s and 1990s, and not just in America, there were quite a few movies about various conflicts or wars or police actions around the world as told through the point of view of the reporters covering them. Movies like The Year of Living Dangerously, directed by Peter Weir, Mm. The Killing Fields, directed by Roland Jaffe, and Salvador, directed by Oliver Stone. And we're going to take a look today at two of my favorites, Under Fire, directed by Roger Spottiswood and starring Nick Nolte, and Welcome to Sarajevo, directed by Michael Winterbottom and featuring, among others, Woody Harrelson. Both of these are about real conflicts around the globe. The former is about the Nicaraguan Civil War, in the late 70s, while the latter is about the Serbian-Bosnian civil war in the early 90s. Both of them have as their main characters journalists who, at the beginning of the movie, anyway, or early in the movie, claim journalistic objectivity. And under fire, the main character says, I don't take sides, I just take pictures, while in Welcome to Sarajevo, the main character says, we're not here to help, we're here to report. And through the course of the movie, we see that both of them end end up helping and or taking sides. Also, in addition to the real wars they're talking about, both movies have characters who are based on real people. And also both movies juggle a political story, with a more mainstream story. And we'll explain all that more detail as we cover both films. But for now, Claude's going to give us the plot description for Under Fire. Yeah, so we get an opening uh, title sequence that explains to us a little bit about the conflict in Nicaragua going on in 1979. So, of course, the film opens in Chad, Africa, where we see soldiers moving through an open field, some of them riding elephants. A firefight breaks out, and we see Russell Price, played by Nick Nolte, photographing everything. Incidentally, this this scene uh, takes place with no dialogue, so the first voice we hear is a Wilhelm scream. 
Afterward, while hitching a ride with soldiers, Russell bumps into a mercenary he knows by the name of Oates, who is played by Ed Harris. Oates does not seem to realize which side he's fighting for in this particular war. At the hotel afterward, Russell attends a going-away party for another journalist, Alex Grazier, who is played here by Gene Hackman. Alex is returning to the United States to take a job as an anchorman in New York. We discovered during this segment that Alex has a girlfriend and fellow journalist, Claire, who is played by Joanna Cassidy. We also learn that Russell and Claire are probably having an affair. At the very least, there's a more-than-friends kind of attraction going on at this point in the story. Alex's story has been paired up with Russell's photos for a cover story in Time magazine under the headline, The Lost War, and there is a mini-celebration of that. Russell and Claire later find themselves in Nicaragua in the waning days of the Somoza regime. Somoza's chief rival among the rebels is someone named Rafael, who is a very elusive person who has never been photographed, so of course... Russell is now on the prowl to get a picture of Raphael. At one point, Russell is arrested, seemingly for no reason, and he's held in jail overnight. He and Claire meet Jazzy, a French spy uh, played by Jean-Louis Trintinant, who is closely connected to Somoza. Jazzy tells them that they might find Raphael in Léon. That's not where the heart of the fighting is, but they do go anyway. While in Léon, they meet up and follow some rebels, and they get into a firefight with government troops among the rooftops. The rebels take them to meet their leader, Pedro, who gives Russell a baseball to take back to Dennis Martinez. Martinez is not only a Nicaraguan ball player, he was the first Nicaraguan ball player. So Pedro has a Baltimore Orioles thing going on, because that's the team that Martinez was playing for at the time. Another fight breaks out, and shortly afterward, Russell runs into Oates again, who is working for the Nicaraguan government. Once the fighting has died down, though, Oates shoots Pedro in the back. Russell knows where the shots came from, but he doesn't say anything because he's trying to remain neutral in the conflict. Afterwards, Claire points out that Russell didn't take any photographs after the last fight, and Russell realizes that when Pedro was shot, he picked up Pedro's rifle rather than his own camera, which he had dropped. Clearly, this conflict is starting to get to him. Claire and Russell attend a gathering that turns into a press conference during which Somoza, who is played by Rene Enriquez, announces that Rafael is dead. The journalists have heard this before, and the thinking is that the U.S. government is delaying shipments of money and arms to Nicaragua until they know for sure whether or not to back Somoza, so Somoza has to do something to reassure President Carter, and this is it. Russell and Claire locate some uh, rebels who say they can take them to Rafael. They're taken to a remote location where they learn that Rafael is indeed dead, and the reason they've been brought there is to get Russell to take a photo of a quote-unquote live Raphael in the hope that this will keep the rebel movement alive long enough for them to win. Russell and Claire are both uneasy about this since their journalistic integrity is on the line, but they do agree to participate in the deception. The photo goes over big worldwide, and it results in Alex turning up in Nicaragua expecting Russell to help him score an interview with Raphael. By now, Alex has also figured out that Claire and Russell are a couple, but he manages to shake it off. The two of them go in search of Raphael. It's becoming pretty clear by the conditions around them that the whole situation is deteriorating. The two of them are detained by soldiers, and during the detention, Russell sees Oates yet again. Unfortunately, this time, Oates is participating in a mass execution. Russell recognizes some of the bodies and confronts Oates about it. Oates tells Russell that Jazzy has been using his photographs to identify rebels who then become targets for the government. Russell runs back to Jazzy's place and finds the evidence that supports what Oates has told him. 
Alex learns that Raphael is dead and that Russell and Claire are both responsible for the faked photo. He eventually agrees not to spill the beans and says he'll do a profile on Jazzy instead. While looking for Jazzy's place, Russell and Alex get lost because the fighting has intensified and they're are more blockades everywhere. Uh, Alex tries to ask some government troops for directions to the hotel, but the soldiers are getting paranoid and they kill Alex. Russell has been photographing Alex while he was walking down the street, so he wound up accidentally photographing the execution. The troops spot him and he runs into the barrio where a woman helps him hide from them. Somoza realizes that having a nationally famous American journalist killed by his troops would be the end of U.S. support for his regime, so he announces that it was the rebels who killed Alex. In the meantime, the troops are combing the city looking for Russell so they can take him out and destroy the pictures before they get out. Russell and Claire head to Jazzy's place, but the house has been taken over by rebels, and they watch the rebels kill Jazzy. Eventually, Russell gives the negatives to Claire, and she finds a way to sneak them back to the hotel, and then she goes searching for Russell. The photos are developed and circulated in short order, and we learn that Somoza has exhumed the bodies of his father and his brother and fled to Miami. The rebels have won, and Russell is now safe. He and Claire reunite, and as they prepare to leave the country, he tells her he would do it all over again. And then under the closing credits, we get a series of photographs, some of them taken by Russell, and some of them appear to be stills from the film. Okay, so... Before I get into a deep discussion, not only of the film, but why I'm doing or why I decided to do these two films in the first place as an episode, we should mention that the character of Alex is actually based on a real person. He's based on ABC correspondent Bill Stewart. Mm -hmm who was murdered by Nicaraguan soldiers along with his translator, which got left out of this movie, in this, but in the same way that it was shown in the movie. And just as in the movie, Somoza tried to pin the blame on the Sandinistas, but then the footage got out that it was actually Nicaraguan soldiers who killed Stewart, and it was because of that that the Carter administration eventually shut off all aid to Somoza's government, which enabled the Sandinistas to successfully win their battle to overthrow Somoza. Right, and now, similarly, um, it was it was there was a cameraman for ABC who was just shooting some B-roll. He, he was just happened to be in the area, wasn't basically you know photographing uh, Stewart specifically. Just happened to catch the thing on film. Right. Now, I was 11 years old when this happened. And with a few exceptions, if it wasn't in the sports page, it didn't make much impact on me. Claude, you're a little older than I am. So do you remember that story at all? I remember, well, Nicaragua was in the news an awful lot. I remember that much. Uh, um, I was not a, an especially politically aware. I was in high school at that point. Um, I was in what, I guess my sophomore year uh, in 1979. And so, um, you know, I did have a little bit of awareness of what was going on in the world. I knew it was like in the news. Um, I couldn't say specifically that I remember that particular incident of, of Stuart dying. No. Okay. So that's something you should keep in mind when you're watching this. I know the reviews at the time, especially Paul and Kale's, who wrote a rave review of this movie, they pretty much knew that this was a major part of the story. But 
nowadays, given all the conflicts around the world, that may not be as uh, highly remembered a story. Having said all that, we'll get now to the reason why I wanted to do this particular episode on, in general, um, the conventional wisdom, or as I've called it before, the accepted narrative of 80s movies in America is that they reflected the conservatism of the country at the time, not just in the fact that the movies played it safe as far as budgets and stories go. We'll talk about that more in a couple future episodes but also in the politics. And like a lot of conventional wisdom that I've read, there is a certain amount of truth to that. However, it is somewhat reductive um, to not misquote, but to do a gross simplification of Isaac Newton's third law of physics, which I'm sure you never expected to hear on a movie-related podcast. (laughs) But for every action, there must be an equal and opposite reaction. And I won't say it's equal, but yes, the 80s were a time of Rambo, of missing an action, of Iron Eagle, and all those movies that were trumpeting America first, and we really won Vietnam or we should have won Vietnam if it wasn't for the bloody liberals. But at the same time, you also had movies like Platoon or Born on the Fourth of July or Casualties of War or the three movies that I mentioned before or Missing, directed by Costa Gavras, movies that were questioning America's foreign policy in the recent past. And I'm limiting myself to that so that this episode doesn't become an epic length. But Under Fire belongs pretty much in that type of story because we get, among other things, scenes like when Alex is on the phone to his bosses trying to convince them that a massacre that they witness, or at least they witness the aftermath of the massacre, that it's an important story. And he says at one point, look, we're backing a fascist government again. I know that's not exactly news. (laughs) So these characters are not shocked by what they see, but we see it nonetheless. You know, and it's not just in the fact that, you know, we hear about the government backing, the U.S. government backing Samozo. We also see it in the form of the ambassador, U.S. ambassador in Nicaragua with the weird name of Hub Kittle, who's played by Richard Mazur. And when he overhears... Alex talk, calling Samoza's government a fascist government. He's right in there questioning Alex's use of fascist and not in the getting in his face type of thing, but doing the normal faceless bureaucrat. Let's not be too controversial about this. Well, he's a, he, he's, a, he's a PR guy, basically. And, and that's what he's been hired to do. So in that sense, he's he just as much as Oates is a mercenary. He's a hired gun and he's just kind of doing what he's 
supposed to do. Right. And the oats, of course, is, um, as you mentioned, the hired mercenary who's working on behalf of the government, who has pretty much contempt, not just for the people he's working for, but the people he's shooting down. Mm -hmm. He calls them... uh, he calls them greasers, I think, at one point. Yes. And Russell, you know, he and Claire and Alex are all a mo- little more knowledgeable about this. You know, they speak the language. They want to go to the, or they speak it somewhat, we should say. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not looking for the official version. But at the same time, they're there to try and chase the big story. And one thing I want to uh, expand on when you're talking about Oates uh, shooting the Sandinista whom Russell had been chatting up with about Dennis Martinez is Russell had her earlier seen him, Oates, pretending to be dead, hiding in a pile of bodies. And Oates asks Price to keep his cover, and Russell says, sure, not just because he's trying to be objective, but also because even though he's not exactly friends with Oates, he doesn't hate him enough to do something like give him away, and he besides, he doesn't really know the rebels. But when Oates shoots the guy... Russell immediately realizes that it's his fault. Mm -hmm. That's why he doesn't pick up the camera. That's why he picks up the gun instead, because he's angry at Oates and he's feeling incredibly guilty. And that, as much as anything else, is what convinces him to fake the photo of Raphael for the rebels, one of which we should mention is a woman who was a translator that he had earlier met at the hotel with Alex. Right, right. And and, and yeah, I, I, I know, obviously, because it happens later in the film, it's not the thing that specifically convinces him to fake the photo, but it's certainly, uh, I guess you could call it a kind of loss of innocence moment. That That's where he starts to turn a little bit and say, you know, the rebels kind of have a point there. And this is like, a, a, this is actually a good thing that they're doing. You know, that that's where he starts to tip over into, into that realm. And, and so it winds up being, you don't realize it quite at the time, but later on, like that was an important moment for this guy. Right. Now, obviously when this movie came out, it got a lot of criticism from the Reagan government, particularly Richard Helms, who was the director of the CIA at the time, I believe. Um, And while there's no proof that it was a direct cause, simply because the movie, sadly, was a flop at the box office, even though a lot of critics did like it, including, as I said before, Pauline Kael and also Roger Ebert. But during that time, Congress was withholding aid to the Contras, despite Reagan, the ones who were trying to rebel against the Sandinista government and put Samoza or someone else they liked back in power. And that 
propelled what later became the Iran-Contra scandal a few years later. But, you know, as I said, there's no nothing that says that this movie caused Congress to vote to withhold money, but certainly it wouldn't have helped too much. At the same time, we should remember that um, not just these days, although these days it would probably be more a thing, but even back then, this movie was getting criticized from the left of being a story that... Among the other stories at the time, like I mentioned, Year Living Dangerously and um, Missing in particular, I believe, that were telling the story of a conflict somewhere else, but through a white American and only treating the people that it's depicting living in the country in one or two dimensional terms. Back when the American Film Institute had a magazine that they put out every month or every other month, I remember John Powers, who at the time was a movie critic for Vogue, I believe, writing an article for them where he made that very argument. And I will say I can understand that argument, but I think of all the movies that I mentioned from before and a couple others that I didn't, that this movie does a better job than most, I think, of trying to see the Nicaraguans as real people. If not quite three-dimensional characters, at least they don't seem to be, at least as far as I'm concerned, and I realize this is easy for me, a white guy to say, but they seem to me at least like something other than stock stereotypes. Yeah, they they are a little bit more complicated than a simple, like, these are the good guys, these are the bad guys. You know, you've got, and especially in the scene where, uh, where Russell is hiding out in the barrio and a woman basically kind of realizes what, what he's up to. So she calls him into her place. She hides him away. She gives him a gun. And then she tries to pretend, well, nobody's in here. But even then, one of the soldiers is sent into that back room where he's hiding and Russell pulls the gun and the two of them are in this standoff. And this very young soldier realizes you're really not sure what his motivation is. It's like either I don't want to die or, yeah, I'm in the army. But the fact is, I'm kind of on their side, too. You, you, I mean, there's no dialogue, so you really can't tell one way or the other, but he doesn't give Russell away and he just comes out and says, no, there's nobody in the room. So you, again, he, he, this could easily be like, this is the bad guy kind of thing. And it doesn't wind up being that way because now you've got this character whose motivations you don't quite know, which is kind of cool because he's not this cookie cutter good guy, bad guy kind of scene. The woman is not necessarily who you'd think it was just scared woman person, you know, who, who is just trying to stay out of the way of the soldiers. And, you know, it, basically everybody just seems to have a little bit more, more depth to them. Right. And that even includes surprisingly enough, Samoza. Now, yeah. Renee, Renee, Renee Enriquez, who was probably best known at the time for playing Lieutenant Calatano on Hill Street Blues. Oh, see, I was, thought you were going to say he was the, the doctor in Godfather 2. 
Well, that too, but is that's only a small role. I'm goofing with you. I knew you were going to say Hill yeah, Street. <laughs> but um, anyway, he's actually from Nicaragua, si. or he was, of course, because he's uh, been dead uh, for a couple decades now. But he actually, I believe, in real life knew Samoza, and so he plays them not as a mustache twirling villain. But someone who's, as Pauline Kael put in her review, has deluded himself into thinking that he's the voice of the people and that everybody loves him. The only time we ever see him get mad in the movie is when he's interrupted with his interview with Claire um, by a government lackey who's come to tell him that they believe that Raphael is dead. Other than that, you know, he comes off as professional or especially in his interview with Claire, charming. You know, yeah. I mean, this is a mass, this is a dictator who is responsible for hundreds of, hundreds if not thousands of people being murdered. But, you know, to quote another movie about um, news at the time, uh, broadcast news, in that scene where William Hurt's character is talking about Gaddafi, he says in a term we like to use, very presidential. Yeah, and and I think I think that's probably a, a real life kind of kind of situation too. We we hear that a lot about. There are people who you know, have these very bad public reputations and you kind of wonder why anybody would want to work for them. But these same people who don't necessarily agree with that person's view, whether it's political or business or otherwise, will still concede that this bad guy can be very charming and, and very personable when they're in that one-on-one -on -one situation. You know, you, you, you heard it about Samoza. You're, Frankly, you know what you heard about Donald Trump, too, is, is, you know, no matter how much you dislike his politics in that one on one situation, he can be a charming guy. So it's really kind of carries over into into the modern day. It's one of those common stories that you hear. Yes, he's a terrible dictator, but nice guy. <laughs> right. And while that's not something we like to see in real life, because that makes him all the more makes those type of people all the more dangerous. It is definitely something that we like to see in movies because it makes those characters all the more interesting. Right. But the fact is, in real life, it is all too often, unfortunately, true as well. Yeah. Now, um, I actually, if you may recall, brought this movie up when we we're talking about Bull Durham because this is the first writing credit for Ron Shelton, the writer and director of Bull Durham. And he served as a, uh, an assistant director on this movie as well. And he also rewrote the movie, basically, because the original writer, Clayton Froman, had set this story in Vietnam. But when Shelton and Roger Spottiswood came on board, they changed the setting to Nicaragua. Um, part of it might have been because they wanted to incorporate the Bill Stewart story in here. I don't know for sure, but it does make you wonder about, you know, what could have been if they had set this story in Vietnam instead. But I think, 
in the context of Nicaragua, it does work pretty well here. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, not that it's been, not that by 1983, Vietnam had been done to death in film. I mean, there had been a couple of films at that point, but, you know, I think I think it was good to just put that focus somewhere else. And, and, and Nicaragua was a pretty good place to put it, especially since it was relatively recent events. At that point, you know, you've got Vietnam was almost 10 years into the back, into the rearview mirror. So, you know, I I think just to just to bring it into a more contemporary uh, kind of setting, it, it actually works a little bit better for it. Right. Now, Roger Spottiswood is one of those directors who, for me, is pretty much run of the mill. Uh, I liked this movie a lot, and I liked the made-for-HBO movie he did of the AIDS, the history of the AIDS crisis, and the band played on, even though he apparently thought that HBO tried to censor a lot of the political material that was in the movie, but... He also was responsible for movies like uh, Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, Uh um, Air America. Mm -hmm. I know there are some fans of Turner and Hooch, but I'm not one of them. And he's also a director, the director of the second Pierce Brosnan James Bond movie, Tomorrow Never Dies, which, as far as I'm concerned, is only worth watching for the sequence where Michelle Yeoh gets to kick some ass. Yeah. Yeah. But he does admittedly do a good job here of not only keeping things moving, but also combining the political part of the movie and the love story part of the movie so that neither feel like they're getting short shrift here. You know, this isn't a movie where the romance feels like it's shoehorned in just because the studio's afraid they're not going to get an audience without it, although they did try and market this as a romantic thriller rather than a political movie. But both of them are done very well because the characters are adults and they behave like adults. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna push back just a little bit on this, and and I, I will say this: I the the first part of the film felt a little bit choppy and episodic, maybe even. Um, I think I think it got better as it as it went along. Um, I, I started to appreciate it a little bit more as as we got deeper into the story, and I think I can pin the turnaround to roughly the scene where he is asked to fake the photo of Raphael. And that's where it started to, to pick up a little bit for me, but you're right. And that the sense that, that, that the adults do behave like adults, they act, they act appropriately. Um, Joanna Cassidy is not just the girl. I mean, she really, I mean, everybody kind of elevates the material that they've got. And so this film winds up being a little bit more than the sum of its parts. It works out, it works out well that way. Cause I'll tell you, you know, when I first started watching this, you know, there, there was a little bit of a feel uh, of, was this was this originally like meant to be a TV movie? I mean, that's the way it felt at first, especially when you're getting just all these, the opening credits. It was like just, I don't know why, but it just had that kind of feel like, like we're going to cut to commercial soon. And and I really, I, I was, I was not with it at first. I, I have to admit that this movie had to kind of like pull me in a little bit. And that didn't happen until ooh, almost halfway through. 
Well, see, I think it's because what Spottiswood and Shelton are doing is as much as they care about the politics of the story, they're also setting up the characters. Yeah, I get that. You know, there, there's a lot of table setting to be done here and a lot of exposition. And, and so I, I, I get that. There, there's a lot that they have to do to get these people into the places where they need to be. So well, you know, it's th- not I'm a little bit more forgiving in that respect. It's not just that. It's that it's not just they want you to know what's going on with the story. They want you to know what these what the people they're showing are like. Yeah. That's why you've got the scenes of say Claire dictating um letter she's going to send her daughter or the fact that Russell is shown shooting film on things that not aren't necessarily important or the whole goodbye party for Alex or when he's playing in the restaurant bar, playing the piano and singing, where you're seeing how much of a showboat he can be, even though he's denying it. And even though he is a good journalist at the time, because he wants you to, or the spotters were in Shelton want you to be able to see at least these characters as more than just the big shot reporter slash anchor, which is what Alex becomes, and the photojournalist and the radio reporter or the woman radio reporter, you know, that they have lives. And although it's dissimilar in almost every other aspect, you can see Shelton using the idea of the love triangle here again in Bull Durham in a completely different setting, of course. And mm-hmm. then he'd do it again in um, Tin Cup, another sports movie he did with uh, Kevin Costner later. So all of what you saw as taking too, too long to get to the good stuff I saw not just as table setting, but letting us care about the people involved. Sure, I think, and, and I can't, I wish I could remember where I saw it, but I did see where where somebody somebody referred to Gene Hackman's performance as like I didn't buy him as an anchor man type guy, but I was able to buy him as somebody who thought he was a good anchor man type guy. Right. Although we have to remember, this is still the era when someone like Walter Cronkite or Dan Rather was an anchor, not um, someone like um, Brian Williams, let's say. Mm -hmm. So I do understand that part. But Hackman does uh, very good in the movie as well and sings passively well. You know, he's not going to make everyone... He's not going to make anyone forget Roy Orbison, but he's passably good. Now, speaking of uh, judging people on their looks, this may be hard to believe for people right now, but there was actually a time when Nick Nolte was considered a sex symbol. Yeah. He was voted People Magazine's sexiest man of the year in their early to mid-90s at some time. And you have to remember, his big break was playing a sort of... Um, pretty boy. Lack, 
Pretty Boy in uh, the TV miniseries Rich Man, Poor Man. Yes. And then also in movies like The Deep. Of course, after all that, he did his best to run away from uh, roles like that. You know, the movie he did right before Under Fire was 48 Hours, where he plays this uh, profanity-laden, hard-boiled detective character. Uh, But in Under Fire, even though he has been around the world and seen a lot of stuff, there is still something a little innocent about him, as you suggested before. And Nolte does a good job of playing that. Yeah, I think I think he like I said, I think I think all of them, they really they bring something to the material that that elevates it just a little bit. And 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 Nolte is is certainly no exception to that. Yeah. Yeah. He was still he was still a pretty good looking guy then. And uh, and and you could you hear this is, I think, the point where his voice is starting to get that real gravelly uh, um, quality that that he's more more recently known for. Right now. I know you're saying all and that you want to sum up the cast here, but I just want to spotlight three other actors here pretty quickly. Although Joanna Cassidy was in one of the biggest cult hits of the 80s, Blade Runner, Mm -hmm. and one of the biggest regular hits of the 80s, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, um, she never really had, I think, the film career that he she deserved most of her work was done on television but she holds her own against both hackman and nolte here and one other thing i appreciated very much about her character and her performance here is that unlike other directors who depicted female reporters in their movies not to mention any names uh, but their initials are oliver stone (laughs) Her character is not a bimbo. You know, she's intelligent and she knows what she's doing. And she's the one who actually rescues Russell when he's trapped, um, when the soldiers are after him for that film he took of Alex being murdered. Not only that, but there's a scene where... Um, Russell and Claire going to Jazzy's house to find the photographs that um, Russell realizes that Jazzy is using to kill up, to have the rebels identified and then killed off. A couple soldiers come knocking at the door and Claire comes out and is able to get them to go away by pretending to be one of Jazzy's girlfriends because we've seen in the movie that Jazzy is a real ladies' man. And most other movies that would depict something like that would have Claire strip and, you know, put on a bimbo-like accent. Yeah. But Cassidy does none of that. She doesn't change her appearance at all. You know, she speaks Spanish, of course, but except for that, she just acts normal, except giving the impression that she's one of Jazzy's girlfriends. And she the fact that the movie does that in intelligent in an intelligent way without being voyeuristic or anything like that, you know, that distinguishes it from a lot of 
other American films like that. Right, right. She just, you know, comes to the door. She's like pretty much, well, nobody's here and, and just acts like she's waiting for for Jazzy. And, 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 and as you say, she doesn't bimbo it up or anything like that. She's she's pretty straightforward. And and even at that point, like when the when the soldiers depart, one of them says something like, boy, that guy's got a lot of girlfriends. Right. Now, speaking of Jazzy, uh, he's played, as you mentioned here, by Jean-Louis Trintignant, who is one of my favorite actors still alive today. He's been in so many great movies. Uh, Z, My Nine at Mons, The Conformist, this was Three his Colors. first American film, though, wasn't it? Yes. And I will admit the accent is kind of thick, so you don't always understand what he's saying without subtitles. But he is very good as a guy who is this mysterious figure who claims to be working for everybody. And even at the end, when he knows he's about to be killed and he's giving a speech to Claire and Russell about how they pick the wrong side, he doesn't overdo it at all. He just delivers it in this calm, angry tone that makes it all the better. He's got that savoir faire that... That 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 really carries it off, and and for a minute you think because he he does say something about uh, basically as the, the longer you keep talking, the longer you live, and you start to think even though they the 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 soldiers that are in there don't understand a word he is saying, you think he might actually pull it off for a minute, and then bang, down he goes. Right now, I did lie. I'm sorry. Two other actors I want to mention performances real briefly. Mm-hmm. Um, Under fire came out right around the time of The Right Stuff, which is another very good movie that also, sadly, was not a hit at the box office. But if you want to see the range that Ed Harris is able to pull off, those two movies are a good place to start because in The Right Stuff, he's playing the uh, goody two-shoes, Dudley Do-Right type John Glenn, at least that's how he's portrayed in the movie and was portrayed in Tom Wolfe's book that it was based on. While in Under Fire, he's playing this real psychopath, a friendly, grinning psychopath, of course, but a psychopath nonetheless. And yet, as with the right stuff, he pulls it off with the greatest of ease. Yeah, he 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 does really well with that, and and, and it's and, and I don't even you don't even view him necessarily as a psychopath as, as so much as just this is a guy without any soul to him. You know, he's he's just coming in, he's going to do his thing, and he's going to get out, and he just has absolutely no conscience about it. But I guess because he is there, the word again, charming. You know, he he pulls it off, and and you just you don't you don't come up with psychopath, you just come up with with. You know, wow, this this what's up with this guy? Like, what's happening in his head? But but you never really think of it as as a uh, as as some sort of mental disorder on his part, right? And even at the end, you know, after the Sandinistas have won, he's in the crowd and he uh, says, "Oh, hey, it's a free country." And his mm-hmm. uh, goodbye to Russell is "See you in Thailand," yeah. which was the next hot spot. And then the last actor I want to mention really quick. And then we'll get to two pieces of trivia I want to mention as well, um, is Richard Mazur, who mm-hmm. I think does a very 
very good job of playing this faceless PR guy. I mean, the reaction he has after Claire finds out that Alex has been killed, you know, it's Jesus, Claire, a tragedy. What can I say? You know, it's the perfect PR line, and he delivers it so well that you really want to smack him in the head or does what Claire does, which is uh, yell an obscenity at him. Yeah, yeah. It actually put me in mind of, of, of later on, um, on, and here we are bringing up West Wing it again, and, um, and, and, and the line, you know, crime, boy, I don't know, as a response to somebody dying. Right. Now, a couple pieces of trivia, as I said, I do want to mention here. Um, first of all, another reporter in the movie is played by Holly Palance, Jack Palance's daughter, who mm-hmm. was married to Roger Spottiswood at the time. Uh, she went on to appear in Spottiswood's next movie, another a sports movie that he did again with Ron Shelton, The Best of Times, which I've never seen, although I've heard very mixed things about it. And the other piece of trivia I want to mention is the part of Jerry Goldsmith's score that gets played at the end. Uh, Quentin Tarantino ended up using in his uh, first Western, Django Unchained. Since I've only seen it once, I couldn't tell you exactly where in the movie it was Actually, but apparently I, I, that was a thing i do know this it is in the scene where they first approach um i can't remember the character's name but it's the character played by leonardo dicaprio when they first approach his house you're using you're hearing goldsmith's music here okay and we should also mention uh, john alcott the cinematographer of the movie he does a very good job here of making sure that we can see everything clearly. He worked apparently with uh, Stanley Kubrick quite a few times on uh, Barry Lyndon and Clockwork Orange, among other movies, and he does a good job here, I think. Yeah, he does. And, and, you know, considering the work that he did on Barry Lyndon, which was extraordinary, um, you know, he, he, this, this is almost a step down. I mean, he does, he does a great, great job. And, and, and as you said, he makes everything, not only does he make everything clear, but he has a way and a good cinematographer will do this of, of getting your eye to look at the thing that you're supposed to look at. And, and, and like, for instance, when you see like crowd scenes and, and you're supposed to see like one specific character in a crowd, you know, if they're good at what they do, you'll pick them up pretty quickly. And, and that's the sort of thing that he's good at there. Right. Now, um, I know you have one thing you want to bring up. Well, I, I just wanted to talk about the Wilhelm scream. I did bring it up at the beginning of my uh, at the beginning of my synopsis. And, and this is um, it's kind of interesting. It's, it's a stock sound effect, basically, that uh, originally appeared in. Well, not originally, but but it was the movie where where it really first got got picked up. But it was in a movie called Distant Drums. And in that film, a man is wandering through. It's like a swamp, I guess. And he gets grabbed by an alligator and pulled under. And you hear this scream. And what happened was somebody picked up on it, thought it was kind of a cool scream. And basically 
they started using it in movies. And it originally, my understanding is it, it first started in Star Wars. So it appears in most of the Star Wars films. But what happened was other people started picking up on it so that other sound designers will actually use the Wilhelm scream in their films as a kind of inside joke. So it's in a lot of films at this point. It's in a lot of Disney and Pixar films. It's in a lot of television shows. You can see it in cartoons. Um, it, it's just, every, and in fact, if you, I, I guess I'll, I'll, what I'll do is I will post a link to it on the website, is there is actually a 14-minute supercut of different movies and television shows all using the Wilhelm scream. And it starts actually with the clip from Distant Drums and then just takes you all over the place. And here's another little bit of trivia here is that the the voice of the Wilhelm scream is people are pretty sure that it was done by Sheb Woolley. And if you don't know that name, you'll probably know the song for which he is best known, which is the Purple People Eater. Okay, and Distant Drums, by the way, is a Western directed by Raoul Walsh and starring Gary Cooper, a rather obscure Western to have this type of notoriety because it was one of the movies that Gary Cooper was in that was not a hit right before he did the movie that revitalized his career, High Noon, which is a movie we're going to talk about in a future episode. So anything else you want to say about Under Fire before we wrap this up? No, like I said, I mean, you, you might find it a little bit slow at beginning. Stay with it because it does get better and it does get good. Okay, so we're going to take a little break and then we're going to jump ahead uh, 14 years in movie in terms of the movie's release date to Welcome to Sarajevo. We'll be right back. Is that song really a cover? What instrument are they playing there? What do those crazy lyrics mean? If you're the kind of person who thinks about stuff like that, you're in luck because I've got just the podcast for you. How Good It Is chooses a single song each episode and takes a dive into the story behind the song and the artist who made it famous. I'm Claude Call. You can find me in your favorite podcast software or just point your browser to howgooditis.com. How good it is. Wow, welcome back to the third half of our show. How was your break? It was fine, but we're going to jump in now to Welcome to Sarajevo, and Claude's going to give us the plot description for it. Damn, it's 1992. Sarajevo was the capital of Bosnia and Herzegovina, but these two nations had declared their independence from Yugoslavia, so the city was under constant siege. And in the middle of all this, of course, is the International Press Corps, including British reporter Michael Henderson, who's played here by Stephen Delane. Uh, everyone's looking for exciting pictures, but Henderson is looking for some more meaningful stories. In one of the first scenes in the film, we see a young woman with her friends and family as she gets ready for a wedding. The female half of the wedding party heads for the church. Inside the church, we see the priest and some of the altar boys preparing the sanctuary for the event. And suddenly, shots ring out and the mother of the bride is killed in the middle of the street by a sniper. Everybody scatters. The press corps starts shooting footage. But finally, it's an American reporter played by Woody Harrelson named Jimmy Flynn who goes out into the firefight to pull the woman into the church. Flynn and Henderson already know each other as the press is all staying at the Holiday Inn during the siege. Henderson's translator turns out to be both inept and corrupt, so the company, ITN, hires somebody named Risto to act as the translator. Risto is played by uh, Goran Viznich. 
Henderson and company come upon an orphanage located on the front line where over 100 children are living in horrific conditions. Henderson can't get any traction for the story at home, but he begins reporting regularly from the orphanage, hoping that it will turn some attention to the war and make the evacuation of the children, at least, a priority to somebody in the outside world. At various points during all of this, we get some archival news clips of various politicians downplaying the seriousness of the war in Sarajevo, including one UN official who suggests that Sarajevo isn't the worst place in the world to be. In fact, he knows of 13 other places that are worse. Flynn challenges him to name the 13 and asks whether Sarajevo is on the way up or down that scale. That Sarajevo is considered the 14th worst place in the world from by the UN becomes a running joke throughout the film. But there's a discussion where a musician friend of Risto's named Harun says he'll play a public concert when Sarajevo makes it to number one. He knows it would be a dangerous thing to do, but he points out that everyone will die happy listening to his music. Henderson meets with an American aid worker named Nina, who is played by Marissa Tomei, and she manages to organize the temporary relocation of many of the children to Italy until the war is over. Her efforts took the cooperation of the United Nations and several of the warring factions, but she managed to get it done. She also arranges to have a girl from the orphanage named Amira, played by Amira Nusevich, uh, moved with the other children. However, Amir is being evacuated to England rather than relocated to Italy. It's an illegal action under the terms of the agreement, but the situation is so bad that the director of the orphanage allows it to move forward. Henderson and some of his crew accompany the children as though they were covering it like any news story, but the fact is that Henderson will be taking Amir to England to live at his home while the others continue on to Italy. The UN caravan is stopped several times, and at one point a half dozen children are removed and are probably going to be executed because they have Muslim names. Amira adapts quickly to life in London. A few months go by, and Henderson gets a call from his former producer in Sarajevo. Uh, her name is Jane, and she's played by Carrie Fox. Jane says that Amira's mother has been located and wants her back. Henderson returns to Sarajevo and asks Risto to help him find the mother. Risto is part of the Bosnian army now. They find a relative of the mother and discover that Amira was sent to the orphanage because the family pressured the mother to do so. Now they know where to go, but on the day they depart, Risto is killed by a sniper. Henderson bumps into the Holiday Inn concierge, Jelko, uh, who agrees to help him get to uh, Amira's mother. The mother says she's lonely and she wants Amira to come home, but when Henderson shows her a videotape of Amira living a happy life in England, she changes her mind and signs the adoption papers. As Henderson prepares to leave the city, he's drawn by a crowd converging on something. It turns out to be Harun staging a concert of peace atop a hill, and he's playing a beautiful piece. It's the Adagio in G minor by Albinoni. Uh, Flynn and some of the orphans are there as well. Everybody's enjoying the music, but Henderson's smile is kind of a bitter one because he's realized that if Harun is playing, then Sarajevo has become the worst place in the world. We go to black and a title card comes up citing statistics of the dead and missing and noting that Emira is still living in England. Right. So um, Michael Henderson in this movie is based on Michael Nicholson who was a reporter for the BBC and who wrote the book that this is based on called Natasha's Story, uh, which is a book I read before I saw this movie for the first time, but it was about 20 years ago, so I don't remember too much about it. I do know that the movie plays up 
Michael's pretense at journalistic objectivity a little more than Nicholson apparently did in real life. Because as I said at the beginning, when he's with, when uh, Henderson is with his cameraman, Greg, who's played by James Nesbitt, who, by the way, has been on a lot of British TV. He says to him, and I think his uh, boss at uh, one point, oh, Jane, that we're not here to help, we're here to report. And just as Russell is moved by seeing one of the rebels assassinated right in front of him and under fire, Michael is moved by seeing a child put at risk very early on in the movie. He sees a child who's dressed as an altar boy who's got blood on his uniform. And while it's after this that he has that line, we're not here to help, we're here to report, we can sort of see in his mind that he's going to latch on to the children, not just because it's a good story, but because he's kind of disgusted that they're put in the line of fire and no one is doing diddly about it. Yeah, he's also a little bit fascinated by the altar boy. Uh, Now, in this film, there are a lot of scenes which take place entirely in Bosnian, and you do not get a translation. And the first time he sees the altar boy is one of them. The boy runs out into the street. He starts to follow the kid, and he loses track of him at one point, and then he picks up on him, and the kid is just standing out there and shouting something. And the fact is, we don't understand what he's saying, but then again... Neither does Henderson because he doesn't speak the language either. And and so it's it's kind of interesting because we do see that altar boy a couple more times, including at the end of the film, because he's part of the crowd moving toward the concert. And he starts and that's really the thing that triggers him to follow the rest of the crowd. But we never really get any more information about that particular child. Right. Now I have to say this about the fact that the Bosnian Um, language is not translated to us unless a translator is actually there, like Risto, that on the one hand, I understand that it's part of showing, in a sense, how cut off the journalists and the rest of the world, by uh, extension, were from Sarajevo, But at the same time, I have to admit it made following a couple of the scenes in the movie pretty tough, you know, especially when Risto comes back after he's gotten the job of being um, Michael Nicholson's uh, translator and driver, and he's bringing everyone eggs that he got. You know, there are parts of that scene where he's speaking English, and so you can follow him. But then there are parts where he's just speaking to Bosnian to them, and you have no idea what they're saying. And while at the (laughs) one hand it's refreshing that they're casting people um, who are Bosnian or Serbian and getting to speak their own language instead of having to dumb it down for American audiences 
who want to hear everyone speak English. I do kind of wish there had been subtitles in a couple of those scenes. Really? Now, that's kind of interesting that you bring that up, because when I saw this film, that scene specifically had captions for me. So he, 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 he breaks out the egg and everybody's amazed. Wow, it's an egg. And then he pulls out a second one and one of them says, another egg, two eggs, that's a miracle. And then he pulls out the third egg and he says, well, what do you call it for three eggs? And one of the guys says, an omelet. And the next thing you see is them eating the eggs. So that scene at least had translated captions for me. Although, yes, there were a lot, a lot of scenes where unless somebody was doing the translation, you had no idea what people were talking to. And there were a couple of times when, and and, and I remember at least in the back of my head, I've got this one scene where an adult is talking to a child and she appears to be giving this child very serious advice. And we have no idea what's being said. So, so there are plenty of times where, where that does happen. That, that for me was not one of them. Well, maybe it's, Depends on which streaming service you're watching this on, I guess, or if you're lucky enough to have the DVD. Now, um, you might wonder why, even though this is based on his story, uh, Michael Henderson, um, although called Michael Nicholson in this movie. No, Nicholson is called Henderson. Nicholson called Henderson. Why he's the center of this uh, movie because of all the actors that are in this movie and there's a mix of people who are um, either well-known to American audiences like Woody Harrelson and Marissa Tomei or people who are well-known to British or in the case of Carrie Fox, Australian audiences like... um, not only Fox, but James Nesbitt, who, mm-hmm. as I said, has done a lot of British TV, or Juliet Aubrey, who plays Henderson's wife, or um, even Emily Lloyd, who was no longer the name that she had been before, but well-known people. And yet you have someone like Stephen Delane, who is not a very expressive actor, being at the center of it all. And yet, at the same time, that kind of works here because he's not the take charge guy. He's not the guy who, um, even though he's trying to find the story, he's not the real heroic character um, that you might see in a different kind of movie. And so the fact that this normal looking and normal sounding guy is being placed at the front and we do see how affected he is by all of this makes it all the more powerful. You know, later in his career, at least in the movies I've seen him in, like Spy Game and Zero Dark Thirty, Delane plays more of the faceless, sneaky government bureaucrat type. Whereas here, he's sort of giving that same performance in this uh, reporter role, and yet the movie makes it work. Yeah, he's not an especially heroic figure, and and um, and at the same time, it's it's kind of cool because he he's just 
he's he's really the opposite of Russell, basically. Russell always lets you know what he's thinking. And that's part of the reason that they were able to play him so well is because, you know, he told the whole world that he was going to go looking for Raphael. So they were like, this is our guy that we're going to play to to you know, get, get to, uh, get to Raphael and get to all of the, the other rebels, you know, in, in this particular case, Henderson is a very quiet guy. You don't always know what he's thinking, but that works in, in his, in, in our favor, because we do get a little bit more of a, of a powerful, a powerful performance so that when he does act on something, it has a bigger impact, I think. Right. Now, uh, in opposition to Under Fire and most of the other movies of this ilk that were made in the 80s, the political point made here is not of U.S. action in another country. It's U.S. inaction yeah. in another country. Because what happened here is the same thing that was happening in Ro- Rwanda Mm -hmm. uh, in the same decade that people of color, Africans in Rwanda, of course, and Muslims here were systematically being slaughtered. And because they weren't white people, uh, there was great pressure on the government not to do anything about this at first. And we do see footage of real-life political figures at the time tying themselves in knots, trying to avoid saying that we should actually do something about this. You know, we do get a clip of uh, a New York senator at the time, Al D'Amato, saying that, you know, we say at the time, we said that World War II, uh, something like uh, this could never happen again. We didn't know that, you know, right now this is happening and yet they're not doing anything about it. So Win- Winterbottom and Frank Cottrell Boyce, who at the time was his screenwriting partner, insert a lot of things like that in the movie and a lot of news footage uh, to a, you know, basically tell you that world um, indifference is a big factor in what led to this happening and continuing. And also they're trying to immerse us into what's really happening. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, I guess it's important to note that this film uh, was shot on location. Okay, so a lot of the the debris and a lot of the ruins that you see in the film are genuine. That's the real deal in Sarajevo and in, you know, the parts of Croatia that you see. And and so I, I think that's important. And then the other thing is that they are intercutting with the, the video footage of the events as they happen. But it's also like a mixed bag because there are going to be some shots that we see in this film, which are designed to look like they've been shot on video and, um, but, but were part of the film rather than part of the historical record. And so you get a little bit of a mix in between, but, uh, and, and, and it winds up being pretty effective because now you kind of have to wonder what was real and what wasn't. And, but I think what it really does is it just adds to the overall verisimilitude of the film. 
Right. And, you know, that is contrast to Under Fire, which, of course, uh, could not get permission to shoot in Nicaragua, or maybe they didn't want to risk it. So that was all shot in Mexico, Mexico, which nevertheless uh, was made, at least to my eyes, convincing. I'm sure someone who lived in Nicaragua could point out faults in the physical locations, um, which more power to them. But (laughs) this was all shot on location. And not only that, uh, instead of having European actors play people from Bosnia or Croatia or anything like that, to the best of my knowledge, we had real Bosnian and Croatian Serbian actors in these roles. Goran Viznik who later became well-known for his stint as Dr. Luca on ER, was actually from Croatia back when it was called Yugoslavia. And he speaks the language perfectly. And the actress who is playing Amira, who is based on, as I said, this uh, woman this uh, young girl, Natasha, she was also, as far as I know, from Bosnia. So that also adds to the verisimilitude of the movie, that they're not simply casting people in Bosnia or Serbia for name value. Viznik wasn't really even known to American audiences, I think, at the time. No, he was actually, Um, he was doing a long-running play in in Croatia at the time. And and so it wasn't until, yeah, he had been seen in this film that he was tapped to, uh, to play Dr. Luca. Right. So... You know, again, that shows uh, Winterbottom trying to make this as realistic as possible. Now, nowadays, Winterbottom seems to be working almost exclusively on either documentaries or Steve Coogan comedies. But back at the time and a little bit afterwards, he was making a little of everything. You know, the movie he did right before this was uh, an adaptation of Thomas Hardy's novel, Jude the Obscure, simply called Jude, which is a, and Thomas Hardy is an author he would return to a couple more times, but he was making all kinds of movies and he was shooting them very quickly. He was making at one point, and maybe still, because I haven't really followed his career um, since the third Trip 2 movie that he did with Coogan and Rob Brydon, but he was, at the time, making almost a film a year. So he shoots very quickly, and yet his movies, even the movies that aren't quite as successful to me, like Jude was a movie that was good, but I thought could have been better. But you do sense a real force behind them, that you know this guy is not just making these movies simply to try and cash in on something, that he feels he's got something to say. Now, obviously, Welcome to Sarajevo, you know, since it's about a civil war, that has something to say. But even in Jude or a movie he did right after this called 
the Wonderland about three woman friends or um, a later adaptation he did of a Thomas Hardy novel, Mayor of Casterbridge, uh, relocated um, into the American Old West and set during the gold rush called The Claim, that you sensed a force behind them. And you can sense it here. Yeah, I think I think he does a fine job on this one. And and again, this is one where you can give a, a pretty big nod to to the cinematography because again you're able to focus on the stuff that you're able to that you're that it is necessary for you to focus upon um it it just has a a good look overall uh, and I'm not just talking about well they were able to use real ruins it, it's just the way that they 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 carry off the overall look of everything you you buy into it and you you do definitely feel that you're in an orphanage it might be a set and it might be you know the real ruins of an orphanage who knows? But you, but you are definitely feeling the plight of the children there. You are, there's there's another scene where it's a I think it's a prisoner of war camp, and and again you see that that the the guys lined up against the fence and just you know how terrible they look, and you really understand that that these people are in kind of a dire situation. And the other thing that he does um, is it gets to a point where you don't quite notice it, and it, that's kind of interesting. Is, is that in most of the scenes that are taking place in Sarajevo, in Sarajevo, there's almost always automatic gunfire going on somewhere in the background or mortar shells going off, you know, and, and, and so when you get to those few scenes that take place somewhere other than Sarajevo, it gets very, very quiet and very, very peaceful. And, and it works out really well in that respect. And, and it's kind of interesting because this is one of those things where, where early in the film, when the girls are getting ready for the wedding and also the people in the church, the priest and the altar boys. And there's this one shot of an altar boy who is lighting the candles and you can hear gunfire going off in the background and it's not phasing anybody. They're just, you know, kind of accepting it as this is the way it's going to, it's going to be. And similarly during the setup, when they're trying to, to set up for the wedding, the power goes out and the mother of the bride has to go into the next room and start a generator. And she takes a bow for her efforts and, and that kind of thing. It's just, well, that's the way it's got it. You know, it, everybody has kind of accepted the situation for what it is. And you wind up doing the same thing is like every once in a while you hear like gunfire punctuating something that somebody said. But for the most part, you know, it, it just kind of falls into the background and you do notice it from time to time, but it is always, always going on there. I think the only scene in Sarajevo where you don't hear um, gunfire going off for the most part is in that scene where uh, Henderson returns to the city for the first time and they're doing the the misblighted Sarajevo contest, and uh, which is a great dark humor kind of scene where all these girls parading around in, in bikinis and bathing suits and and... and there's a band playing Eve of Destruction and and everybody is just having themselves a wonderful old time. And I think that's about the only time because it's just otherwise so noisy in that particular space. But every other time, yeah, gunfire going on. Right. And we should also mention about that scene with the generator. That's when we realize, and this is also effectively done, uh, that the song playing over the opening credits, which is The Way Young Lovers Do by Van Morrison, mm -hmm. is diegetic music. Because as soon as the yes. generator goes off, the music stops. And then when the generator comes back, the song picks up again. 
uh, as before. Now, uh, the guy who was the cinematographer here uh, is a guy by the name of Daff Hobson. And most of the stuff that he did after this was for British TV. But this was actually the second and last movie he shot for Winterbottom. Uh, the previous movie they did together was a made-for-British television movie that was later released to theaters in the U.S. called Go Now, mm -hmm. which also starred Juliet Aubrey and James Nesbitt. Now, uh, one other thing that I want to talk about here is, well, a couple other things. But first, uh, Woody Harrelson's character, Flynn. When I talked about American movies about journalists in the studio era, another thing that distinguished them from most of the types of movies that are about journalists now is that they were all cynics. You know, there's a line that I always think of um, when I think of those uh, types of movies uh, from a Caleb Carr novel called The Angels of Darkness, where a woman is talking about a reporter colleague to a potential client because she's a private detective. And she says, uh, journalists come in two types, cynics and liars. And in the studio era, they were all cynics who yet could be counted on when the chips were down to do the right thing. And Flynn, I think, is squarely in that tradition. Yeah. Not just in the way that the actions he takes, like when he's dragging the body from the ground early on in the middle, um, but also the way he's puffing himself up because of that. And yet the way that he is, you know, questioning the UN guy about um, Sarajevo being only the 14th worst place on earth and are they going up or down and the relationships he has, has with the other journalists in the movie, particularly with Michael Henderson. There's a real set of sense of these guys are rivals. They snark at each other, but deep down they're friends type of thing mm -hmm. without ever getting too sentimental about it. Yeah, and, and I think there's there's even one point, if I'm not mistaken, and it might even be in the scene with with the beauty contest where where Henderson says something along the lines of you you care about these people more than you let on. And he doesn't really respond to that, but he kind of concedes the point. And you also get a scene earlier when Henderson is leaving with the children and with um, the uh, aid workers. And I'm going to get back to Marissa Tomei in a second here, where he is talking to Risto or another Bosnian, and he apologizes on behalf of America, that mm -hmm. they haven't done more to intervene on behalf of the Muslims. So you do see that he really does care about what's going on here. Yeah, and in fact, he concedes like if, if the if the situation had been reversed, if if Christians were being slaughtered by Muslims, oh, we would have certainly acted by now. Yes, exactly. Now, 
Um, as I said, I was going to get back to the character that of Nina that Marissa Tomei plays. Um, I haven't seen the movies in question, but within the last decade or so, there have been a few movies about aid workers. Uh, one starring Angelina Jolie and Clive Owen called Beyond Borders. Another one directed by Sean Penn and I believe um, starring Jessica Chastain. I can't remember what that was called. But when those movies came out, they were pretty much slaughtered by the critics and they did no box office, um, which is part of the whole... It's tough to, if not impossible, to portray selfless characters on film without having them seem gratingly one note or too good to be, quote unquote, to be interesting to work on film. And then even though Nina is basically a supporting character, and then another movie that I can think of that had an aid worker as a supporting character, the movie about the Rwandan massacre, Hotel Rwanda, which did get good reviews. Um, you know, those are two examples, I think, where a character who's an aid worker is portrayed in an interesting light. You know, Marissa Tomei, even though she doesn't have much screen time here, makes her into a three-dimensional human being here. Yeah, I, you know, and it's kind of interesting because, you know, most people, when they think of Marissa Tomei, they think of her character in My Cousin Vinny and kind of reduce her to that. And so when they see her in something else, I think people actually have kind of a hard time accepting that she can do something else when, when she really had to kind of reach in and put on that, 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 what was her, what was her, I can't remember her name in the, um, in, in, in cousin Vinny, but, but, you know, she is a, a, a broader talented care, uh, actress and, and that I, yeah, I, as you say, I think she, she, she gave this a little bit more of, of a, of a depth than you might've expected. And, and it worked out really well. Mona Lisa Vito Mona is the Lisa, character she it. played in yeah. um, My Cousin Vinny. But you have to remember that there was also a really bad smear campaign that came out after she won the Oscar for that performance, claiming that the only reason that she won was because Jack Palance screwed up and got the name wrong when he was uh, reading the winner out. And, you know, that was really unfair. And because of that, her career really suffered. She had transitioned by this time, instead of doing leading roles, to playing supporting roles in movies, but not getting much traction behind them. And it wasn't until uh, she got an Oscar nomination a few years after this for playing a supporting role a superb performance, by the way, in um, the movie In the Bedroom that she was taken seriously, I get, and I think. But no, she does a uh, very good job here of making the character seem real and not cliched. Yeah, yeah. No argument at all there. 
Yeah. Now, um, there's uh, nothing else I want to mention here, unless you've got anything else to uh, mention. No, I, I, I don't think so. Okay. So this is the point where we tell you that Under Fire is streaming on Hoopla, which apparently is available possibly through your local library. Right, just like Canopy. Yeah, and it's also available to rent or buy only on Apple TV and Vudu, whereas Welcome to Sarajevo is available to stream on HBO Max, HBO Regular, DirecTV, and then also HBO if you subscribe through Amazon Prime, and is also available to rent or buy through most other renting or streaming services. Yeah, unfortunately, Under Fire is a, we learned the hard way, a tough, tough DVD to get a hold of. It is apparently out of print, and so you are depending upon the largest of others who are selling used copies at this point. Or to put it another way, uh, I have, we have always depended on the kindness of strangers. <laughs> yes. Okay, so next up, we're going to jump into 70s conspiracy thrillers. Specifically, we're going to look at those movies that said, asked the question, who killed JFK? And answered, it was a conspiracy. And the two best movies, I think, about that subject were The Parallax View, directed by Alan J. Pakula, and Winter Kills, written and directed by William Richard. This should be real interesting. I can't wait to find out how our discussion goes for this one. And The Parallax View is available to stream through Canopy. Yes if it's available through your local library, as well as Pluto TV, if you're willing to put up with the ads, and also Amazon Prime, if you subscribe, and is also available to rent or buy with Amazon and YouTube and Google Play. And and most a of the usual of suspects. The, yes. Whereas Winter Kills is also available to stream through Canopy, as well as through Hoopla, and is available to rent or buy through Amazon only. But you can also pick up Parallax View on the Criterion Edition DVD, and Winter Kills on a um, out-of-print DVD, if, again, you're willing to depend on the kindness of strangers. Yes, indeed. Okay, and where can we find you on the web? Well, I'm available to, uh, I'm seen, I should say, (laughs) on Facebook under my name, Sean Gallagher. And I'm also sort of lurking on Instagram under the name Sean Gallagher 4, if you want to follow me, even though I don't have much to say at the moment. And you can always email us with a question or comment through our 
email address, which is wordsandmoviespod at gmail.com. And where can we find you, Claude? Well, likewise, the show itself has a Twitter feed over at um, words underscore movies pod. You can find me on the Twitter machine at Claude Call, just my name spelled out there. Or you can check out my other podcast, How Good It Is, at howgooditis.com. All right. So we will see you all next time. Thanks for listening. Yes, indeed. Thank you. Take us out, Rebecca. This is your announcer, Rebecca Blackman, with the closing credits. This show was produced by Sean Gallagher and Claude Call, with editing and post-production by Claude, with some help from Ophonic. Audio clips are used under fair use rules for commentary and educational framing. Everything else is copyrighted by Claude Call and Sean Gallagher. The theme music you're bopping along to right now is by Solar Flare and is used under a Creative Commons license. Podcast hosting is provided by Anchor.fm. If you want to support the show, go to anchor.fm slash wordsandmovies and click on the support link. Who knows, maybe they'll even kick a few bucks my way. Thanks for listening. <laughs>